morning. Um, to, uh, this morning we're going to read from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, and then chapter 10, verses 1 to 8. So starting with Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When the evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the, sil- all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. And going ahead to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus set out, sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, 
for the worker is worth his keep. If you happen to check out our website, today it's been updated to let people know what's happening with our service. It doesn't get updated much, but on the front page you'll find this claim, everyone is welcome. Now I was talking to someone the other day who asked how I thought we'd go at welcoming the people Jesus welcomes in the gospel, the tax collector or the prostitute, the outsider, the the marginalised in our community. I wonder how you think we'd go as a church community. So I've been thinking about this question and I think our challenge might be welcoming a a different group of people who feel marginalised in the modern world, those taken to the streets calling for a revolution after COVID and lockdowns and vaccine mandates. As a church, I'm not sure we're as diverse as we could be on a bunch of areas of division, whether it's race or class, Uh, but I think too we're not that great at being diverse in our politics and having people come together who share different views on the issues that divide our nation. We're not having to work at unity and at being welcoming where we disagree. You might feel differently and that's great, that proves me wrong straight up and that's, that's okay. But I wonder too how we'd go as a church family at receiving Jesus if he turned up calling for the sort of repentance and righteousness and sacrifice that he calls for in the Gospel of Matthew, the sacrifice of self and of status that he was just asking for on the mountain, in the Sermon on the Mount, if he came calling us to his kingdom. See, as we've been working through Matthew in the last few weeks, Jesus has been on the mountainside. We've dealt with one talk he gave over three weeks. It's this space-time continuum thing that goes a bit funny. But Jesus has been on the mountain talking about the kingdom of heaven. And today, he comes down the mountain. He's been teaching his disciples to pray for God's kingdom and to come and live as part of it. He's been following the pattern of Moses who went up the mountain in order to bring God's kingdom down the mountain, bringing heaven to earth. We saw last week that this was Israel's task to be the people who dwelt on the mountain with God where his temple was, uh, dwelt with God and then would take God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, from the temple mountain to the world. Uh, Only they failed. They failed like Adam and Eve, failed to bring God's kingdom, his presence, down from the Eden mountain into the world. Adam and Eve and Israel were meant to represent God as his image bearers, bringing heaven to earth, but instead they get cast down the mountain into exile, which is separation from God, separation from the heavens, and so they face death and curse rather than blessing. And so now as Jesus comes down the mountain, we're asking what sort of kingdom he's going to bring. Whether he's going to lead us in the same way that the kings of Israel or that Adam and Eve did, giving in to the temptation of Satan and bringing a kingdom of curse, one opposed to God, that brings death and destruction and war, or whether he's going to bring a kingdom of life and blessing and restoration. And the crowds are following him now to find out. He's been talking about the kingdom and they want to see what this kingdom is like. And what we see unfold in Matthew's Gospel, uh, in the chapters we're covering today, chapters 8 to 10 and, and throughout the rest of the Gospel, is a series of pictures of heaven breaking into earth, of what it looks like for restoration to come as God's heaven breaks into a world that's exiled from Him, where curse is replaced with blessing and where Jesus demonstrates the authority of the heavenly throne. That's a word that's going to come up a bit this morning, this word Authority is Jesus demonstrates that he has it as he speaks 
to restore those who are swept up in the curse, whether it's sickness or storm or evil spirits. And what we're seeing is the authority of heaven breaking into earth. And it's going to land in Matthew's Gospel, this word, right at the end of the story in the Great Commission and the proclamation that all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to Jesus. That by the end of the Gospel, the kingdom has come because Jesus is King, the ruler of the heavens and the earth. So these little authority episodes that we get along the way here are pictures of how Jesus is going to ultimately join with God to use his authority to bring about a new creation where heaven and earth come together, where there'll be a feast that we who follow him are invited to join, where Jew and Gentile come together, as we saw in that little episode with the centurion, and are put together in one kingdom. And we're going to see how that happens first as we work through Matthew's Gospel through the Spirit coming into us to make us meeting points between the heaven and earth. New creations in Jesus who anticipate the renewal of all things. And so what we're going to do this morning, it's quite ambitious, we're going to race through some of the stories that happen around our two readings from Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 10. And so first we meet a leper, this man who comes to Jesus as a walking picture of curse, of sickness, of being unclean and excluded from the presence of God, excluded from the temple and from the people of God because he had leprosy. And this man comes to Jesus, he calls him Lord and he asks him to heal him, to clean him, to make it so that he can be restored to God's people and God's presence in the temple. And Jesus speaks and he says, be clean. And so the man healed, heads off to the temple to be readmitted into God's people. It's a picture of curse and exile and restoration, even resurrection, new life for this man in the community of God's people. And then we meet the Gentile soldier, a representative of the very empire that Jewish people in the first century thought Jesus might have come to destroy, a powerful man, a powerful man who in this story is motivated by love for his servants. Now, it's the same word for slave. This is a weird, upside-down way of being in the world as a Roman. And this man, he recognises that Jesus also has authority. And though his servant is experiencing curse, sickness that would lead to death, Jesus is someone who can heal with a word. There's an interesting turn of phrase in this little interaction where he says that he is himself a man under authority and he sees that in Jesus. It's not that Jesus comes with his own authority, but like the centurion whose authority comes from Caesar as part of a kingdom that he belongs to, this centurion is recognising that Jesus' authority comes from the kingdom he belongs to. Ultimately, it comes from heaven, from the Father. It's a kind of shift in loyalty going on for the centurion as he recognises that Jesus is king, not Caesar, and that God's kingdom is the kingdom that brings life and peace and restoration, not the kingdoms of this world. So he models a response to Jesus that Jesus says is a picture of the sort of person who will join the kingdom of heaven he's bringing. He says this Gentile, this general in the Roman army, shows the kind of faith, the demonstration of an understanding of the kingdom that he hasn't found in Israel. His heart's on display with his care for his servant, but he's also recognising Jesus as king in a way that Israel has so far failed to do. The leaders of Israel have failed. And Jesus says his kingdom is going to include many from the east and the west, from outside of Israel, 
who joined the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, in the kingdom at a feast at God's table. While those who think they're in the kingdom, there's a warning for them, those who reject the authority of Jesus, they are going to be thrown outside. Those who think they are insiders will be thrown into the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They'll be exiled for real from God into darkness and despair and death and judgment. And then Jesus speaks again with authority, just as the centurion knew he could, authority from heaven, and he gives life to this centurion's servant. Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And as Jesus rolls through the countryside, he, he brings these pictures of restoration. He heals Peter's mum, and then people in the town that she lives in bring a, a whole host of people experiencing curse and the impacts of life separated from God. He heals, he drives out spiritual oppression as well, demons and spirits, bad versions of the heavens breaking into the earth. And he does this with a word too. This is a man demonstrating authority over heavenly and earthly things. And Matthew tells us these restorations, these pictures of the kingdom coming, these responses to heavenly and earthly curse and rebellion are to fulfil the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The prophet who described what it would look like for God's kingdom to come, for exile from God to be finished, for curse to be replaced with the blessing of Eden. Now, this quote comes from one of the servant songs from Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, this is a series of pictures that Israel hadn't yet connected to the Messiah turning up, but Isaiah 53 anticipates a figure who would take on the pain and suffering of the exile, take on the pain and suffering of the people. He'd be punished by God, he'd be afflicted, he'd do this as an offering for sin in order to bear the sin of many and to make intercession. He'd do it like a lamb led to the slaughter, to the sacrifice, sacrifice in the altar. This servant would go down into darkness, experiencing exile from God. He'd be crushed, but he'd also prosper and experience long and fruitful days with his offspring. He'll see his offspring and prolong his days. He'll be with God and be satisfied. This servant would go down into darkness and after he has suffered, would come up into the light of life and be satisfied. Prosper. Isaiah has lots to say about the restoration of God's kingdom after exile. And these chapters from here are full of rich imagery of this picture where not only would the suffering servant experience fruitful life, but God promises to heal and restore and comfort the mourners. This is what we see Jesus doing in these little episodes. Isaiah pictures a sort of righteousness, fasting even, and, and Jesus is going to be grilled on fasting in this section of Matthew. Uh, Isaiah talks about the sort of fasting God actually requires for his people, the sort of giving up of the things of this world. Isaiah says God wants a fasting that looses the chains of injustice and sets the oppressed free. The sort of fasting or religion that God wants is to see the hungry being fed and the poor being sheltered and people being welcomed rather than turned away. And when this happens, then light will break forth. It's that same picture of the city on a hill, light shining out of God's people as His people are restored to relationship with God and to new heavenly life with Him but on the earth. 
That's when God will lead them back to green pastures, to a a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. When they delight in God and His law and serve Him, He will cause them to ride in triumph on the heights of the lands. There's those mountains again. And to feast on their inheritance. It's like Jesus pictured with the centurion. And so we've got this imagery of gardens and mountains and shining people who reflect God's glory. Again, this is Eden language again in Isaiah. This is that same promise of restoration of God's kingdom breaking in. And it's what we see Jesus doing as he comes to fulfill Isaiah, as he heals people and becomes the suffering servant who gives his life as an offering for sin to pay the penalty, the debt for our offences, the ones that separate us from God, that cause exile from God, so that we might be restored. And in these little stories in Matthew that come before the cross, we're seeing little echoes of the big story of the gospel, little fulfilment pictures as tastes of the main event. We're seeing Jesus come to fulfill Isaiah as a suffering servant and as the righteous Israelite, coming as the one who also speaks with the authority of heaven. And we see that in the next little story where Jesus speaks with the voice of God, the Creator, revealing that He's an authority over creation itself, over the chaos waters. When He calms the storm with a word, it evokes this image from Genesis where God creates the heavens and the earth and He brings land and stability out of the chaotic darkness of the waters. He speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey. And His disciples who are with Him in the boat ask, what sort of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And the answer to that question they ask in their awe and their fear is that this is the God-man, the creator entering the creation. This is what a voice with authority from heaven looks like as he brings heaven into earth, as he recreates. And straight after he calms the storm, we get the pig demon story where Jesus goes into Gentile territory and meets two violent demon-possessed men They're causing trouble and the demons know exactly who Jesus is and they say something true about him. He's the son of God. And then Jesus speaks with authority over the demons. He says, go, and they go, like a centurion ordering his soldiers around. And the demons are chucked into the abyss, the waters with a bunch of pagan sacrifice meats. Or if you're a Gentile like me, delicious bacon. And then we meet a paralysed man. He has to be brought to Jesus. He can't even come on his own terms. Uh, Jesus tries to unpack something of the connection between spiritual separation from God and our experience of the physical world and our broken bodies. And, and then what happens when heaven and earth are separate? The friends and the man, they want a healing from Jesus. They want his body put back together. But when Jesus sees their faith, he says, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. He speaks with the authority of heaven. He speaks to restore the chasm between this man and God and even the friends and God. He sees their faith and says this. But then this little episode again becomes about Jesus' authority because the teachers of the law don't think he can speak for heaven. Only God can say this sort of thing. And so they accuse him of blasphemy, taking up God's name in vain, of claiming to speak for heaven when he really is only speaking for earth, but Jesus wants to show that he has come to bring the authority of heaven to earth. 
He wants them to know that he's the son of man, which is this Daniel image of the, the one who would approach the throne of heaven and rule from there. But he wants them to know that he has authority on earth to speak for heaven, to forgive sins, to heal our separation from God, to bring heaven and earth together in the lives of people, not just in that kind of cosmic ordering of things, and to do this by forgiving sins. And so he proves that he can do this by speaking to heal the man on earth as well. Get up, take your mat and go home. And when people see him bring heaven and earth together like this, they are in awe and they praise God because he's given this authority to man. People are starting to recognise that Jesus can, in fact, speak for heaven. And then there's this little story where we meet the author of Matthew's Gospel, where we meet Matthew, where Jesus turns up and simply says, follow me. And if there's one application for the whole Gospel, it's the one where the writer himself demonstrates his response. Matthew gets up and follows him. Matthew, the tax collector, is a sinner, an outcast, who knows that he has a problem and who recognises the authority of Jesus. And so when he meets him, becomes a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And his house then becomes a house that welcomes sinners and other tax collectors, that gets on board with the mission of Jesus. So they're having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners, those who'd otherwise be excluded, come and eat with him and his disciples. And Jesus gets confronted about this and he explains why. He says he's on a mission to bring sinners home, to invite those sent off into exile whether from Israel or the Gentiles, to join the heavenly banquet, to sit at God's table. And so Matthew's use of his table is a picture of that heavenly feast. He's come for the sick, for those who know they need a doctor, those who know they need restoration and resurrection, like the people we've met in these stories. Not the righteous, but sinners. And there's a couple more little stories on the road, like the bleeding woman who's unclean according to the law and so a a picture of exile for the people who when she touches Jesus he should become unclean but instead she's restored because of her faith and the dead girl the daughter of the synagogue leader who Jesus restores to life what an outrageous thing this man's asking Jesus my daughter's just died come and heal her come and raise her but this too is a picture of faith that Jesus is the one who can undo the absolute pointy end of the sting of the curse, death, that he can reach into that exile from God and life and pull them back to him, which of course he can and he does do. He goes in, he takes the girl by the hand and she gets up and instead of becoming unclean and outcast because he touches a dead body, he cleanses and raises and restores And then we meet some blind men who see Jesus as he really is, who call him the son of David and cry out, have mercy on us, which he does. He touches their eyes and says, let it be done, and they're restored. And so they receive their sight back while we see how blind the Pharisees are. As the Pharisees join the teachers of the law in saying some stupid stuff about Jesus, Jesus drives out a demon who stops a man speaking straight after he's healed the blind man, and and that man can talk. And then we see what demonic speech from blind guides looks like. When the Pharisees open their yappers and say, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This is not someone speaking with the authority of the good part of heaven, but the rebellious part, they think. 
But in saying this, they're revealing who their master is. They are revealing their blindness, that they are not fit to lead Israel towards the righteousness of God's kingdom. So in this series of stories, we see Jesus coming down the mountain to bring a taste of heaven, of restoration. We see the people he welcomes, those who recognize his authority, like the centurion or the friends of the paralyzed man or the synagogue ruler or the blind men. And these restored people are us if we come to the great healer who brings heaven to us. Matthew gives us a summary of his travels. He, he's told all these stories and he's perhaps a bit overwhelmed. He, there's just so many more. He goes all through the towns and villages. He keeps proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and he keeps healing disease and sickness. Keeps bringing restoration with him wherever he goes as he proclaims the kingdom is coming. And then we get to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out to do the same, to be little agents of heaven breaking in, proclaiming the kingdom is coming, proclaiming it with the authority of Jesus. They become men under authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness, to do what Jesus has been doing as they act with his authority. And we get the list of 12 names, the 12 disciples, and even in these names, there's a cool thing that shows us something about the kingdom and the sort of community it creates where enemies come together and are welcomed, where tax collectors can share a table with zealots. Remember, zealots were the ones with the knives who loved to stab Roman sympathisers and tax collectors were right up there on the hit list. And so here in the community of the kingdom that Jesus builds, the community built around a table, it's a picture of the table of heaven, tax collectors join zealots. And these 12 are sent out to proclaim his message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. To do this as little pictures of heaven, uh, heaven, healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing those with leprosy, driving out demons, doing exactly what Jesus has done in these stories. Because they have received that restoration freely. They are to freely give it. Now you might wonder why we don't go out and raise the dead or drive out demons, or cleanse those with leprosy. I think it's important to note that this is happening before the cross. Before Jesus' death and resurrection and the coming of the Spirit, and the Great Commission where Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, where the kingdom has arrived, in a sense, because it's important to make this point. This is a thing that he's telling the disciples to do at this moment, in this place, because there's this bit in the verse before it, where Jesus says they should only go to Israel. They're not to go to the Gentiles at this point. And that's not what the kingdom is going to be. We've seen with the centurion that Jesus has said, people will come from the east and west to join in the table at the kingdom of heaven. But there's a particular reality for Israel. God has promised them a Messiah, a kingdom that will come. The the kingdom will flow down from the mountain of Jerusalem into the world. That's going to be how he blesses the nations as he restores Israel from their exile, the 12 tribes, not just the the two who are the Jewish people in the first century, but also that through that he'll restore all people from the exile that began in Eden. See, this is a particular mission for a particular time, for a particular group of people, the 12, to go to a particular group of people, Israel. And one of the reasons we know this is that Jesus says, you'll not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
This is an announcement that something is about to happen that's going to change the world. Their mission is to announce that God's King, the Son of Man, the human King, who will enter the courts of heaven and rule with God, bringing heaven and earth together. He has turned up and Israel should get with the program. They should recognise their King. It's by the end of the Gospel, the Son of Man has arrived. He's received all authority in heaven and on earth. And as he says this, he's about to ascend to the heavens and sit at God's right hand. The man under authority becomes the man with authority who pours out the Spirit with his Father. The suffering servant who makes atonement for sin in his death and brings resurrection and eternal life in the kingdom of heaven as the shining one who obeys God's laws takes his seat on the throne to bring us to that place, to bring the kingdom of heaven and life with him. See, our mission is actually bigger and better than what the disciples get in chapter 10. The disciples are told not to go to the Gentiles. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, because he has all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore his disciples should go to the whole world, to all nations, to be sent in the world and make miracles and bring the kingdom, greater miracles even than those we see before the cross, those little pictures of restoration and resurrection, we get the real deal. We get to bring the kingdom of heaven with us as we proclaim the resurrected Jesus and invite people to receive God's spirit. Every time a person puts their trust in Jesus, it is a miracle. That person shifts from death, from exile to God, to life with God for eternity, to an eternal life, the life of heaven, to becoming a bridge between heaven and earth that begins as they receive the Spirit. Back in chapter 10, Jesus says, as his followers are sent out into Israel, they're going to face opposition from the kingdoms of this world. But they should not be afraid. There'll be people who will persecute them, but blessed are the persecuted, remember. And he says, when this happens, if they speak faithfully, God will speak through them. Don't be afraid of people. And he gives a few reasons for this. He says, first up, God's going to reveal his kingdom ultimately. It won't stay hidden. It will be made known in a way that vindicates them for the stand they take and for the suffering they endure, just like the suffering servants. Also, it's because God, it's God, not man, who determines the eternal destination of people. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's God who determines our eternal destiny. And finally, his reason is because we're actually valuable to God. More valuable than the sparrows who are sold for a penny, who fall to the ground, even within God's care. Valuable because God knows the number of hairs on our heads and we are worth more to him than the many sparrows he gives life. As we're persecuted by people... We need to remember that God is big and those people are small and that God cares for us and he gives us life because he loves us. And those are the words that Jesus uses as he sends his disciples out amongst the wolves. Now through these chapters we meet a bunch of people responding to Jesus, acknowledging him uh, as the Lord, as the Lord who has authority. Uh, even the demons call him the son of God. The blind say he's the son of David while the teachers of the law and the Pharisees fail to acknowledge him, they get it all wrong. These stories invite us to acknowledge that Jesus is the one with authority from heaven, the one who speaks 
for God and as God, or to reject him as some demonic crazy man who claims to bring heaven to earth but doesn't have the ability to do so. And Jesus says how we acknowledge his authority matters. Whether we recognise his authority over us and over our lives matters. Whether we recognise that he is the one who brings heaven to earth and invites us into his kingdom that matters, but what really matters is Him acknowledging us. You see, whoever acknowledges me before others, He will also acknowledge before His Father in heaven. Whoever disowns Him before others, He'll disown before His Father in heaven. Jesus is a man under authority. He's under the authority of His Father, and our life in the kingdom of heaven hangs on Jesus acknowledging us before Him. He invites us to do that and to do this by following him, to do what Matthew did, to take up our cross and follow him. That's a a theme we'll see unfold through the gospel from here on in as we head towards his death on a cross, as he brings heaven and earth together as the one who makes atonement for us, who restores us from exile. So it turns out that in that little story of Matthew, our author, the sinner who follows Jesus, We get our application not just for today, but for the whole gospel. Matthew follows Jesus, and so he welcomes those Jesus comes to welcome. He welcomes those Jesus comes to bring to the heavenly feast at God's table, to his own table. This is a picture of what it looks like to model the right response to Jesus, what it looks like to acknowledge Jesus and bring a picture of heaven to earth, to invite people to connect with heaven. Jesus lands chapter 10 talking about how when people welcome his disciples, they are actually welcoming him and the one who sent him. Welcome is how we acknowledge that God is God. He says that even when we give a cup of water to one of his children, whether we know that they are or not, when we're welcoming him in that way, we're acknowledging and welcoming him and we will be welcomed by him. And so the challenge for us as a church is to be a community shaped by the authority of Jesus. He's bringing heaven and earth together and shaped by his great commission, this community that acknowledges and welcomes Jesus and so demonstrates that by welcoming others. Welcoming others here with us to be a a house of hospitality, a community that represents and reflects heaven breaking into earth, a community who is shaped by how we do things together on a Sunday as we welcome others to our community and to to the table as we share in communion, to the tables downstairs as we share coffee and lunch, but also that flows through to how we use our tables during the week as these people who follow Jesus, who want to welcome others as we acknowledge him, acknowledging that Jesus, the Son of Man, brought heaven to earth and sent us to do likewise, recognising that we are sinners who've been healed by the great healer and welcome to his table, that we Gentiles, and that's most of us, I think, have now been brought into his kingdom, not just as sinners, but outsiders, invited to feast with him and his people Israel forever. So this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. We're going to share a taste of it now as we share in communion together, acknowledging and welcoming Jesus as we acknowledge and welcome one another.